And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome John Archibald to the program today. John is a longtime reporter and columnist for the Birmingham News. In 2018, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for commentary. Today, we'll be discussing his first book, Shaking the Gates of Hell, A Search for Family and Truth in the Wake of the Civil Rights Revolution, which is published by Knopf. So, John, what was the thing that sparked your reconsideration of your father's sermons during the Civil Rights era? There's a lot of things, I think, but it, it, partly because I just came to reassess things in, the, in a new age after a time, you know, when my father was gone and I could look at it maybe a little more objectively. But the truth, I guess, is that in, it was what, December of 2018, I realized that I had the file cabinets of my father in my basement that had been moved there since his death and uh, several years before. And I'd never really looked at them. I'd never really paid that much attention to his sermons. I didn't really listen to him that much as a child. I was busy drawing or acting up in church. But I found out that they had every, I mean, every sermon he ever gave was written and dated and filed by year and by church in these file cabinets. And so I had always in the back of my head wondered what he had been saying during the civil rights movement, primarily because of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which excoriated the white church of which he was a part. He was a preacher. His father was a preacher. His father was a preacher all the way back to, you know, the 18th century, actually. And I just had always assumed that he had said the right things because that's what he would have said at home. And he was a person who believed in equality and, and all of these, and all of the things that, that he came to teach me really and others. But I guess somewhere in the back of my head, I had been afraid to ask when he was alive. And I don't know why that was, but when I started looking at those sermons and I started with the month I was born, which was April of 1963, at that moment in time when Birmingham was exploding with dogs and fire hoses and the children's crusade in which thousands of kids were, who were marching with Dr. King were arrested and taken to jail at the same time he was. And it happened to, to coincide with what on the church calendar was Children's Sunday, as they called it. And so I read my dad's sermon while all those kids were in jail. And as he gave the sermon 23 miles from the jail cell where Dr. King was writing that letter, there was no mention of the children in the marches. There was no mention of the the trouble that occurred there. There was mention of trouble around the world and far, far away places. You know, that sort of became a theme in that it was easier, it, it seemed in that time, and maybe in all times, in different issues, to focus on trouble in far away places and ignore that right outside your windows, whether they're stained glass windows or not. So I had to start looking, and I looked at the dates of the settlement, the Montgomery March. I looked at the dates of the Birmingham Church, 60th Street Baptist Church bombing, et cetera, et cetera, on and on, all these important days and times. And, and throughout much of the 60s, I, I found the loudest thing I found was the silence. It was really disappointing. And so that's, that's why I had to find out why. And as we've recently looked back at the life and legacy of Congressman John Lewis, the phrase good trouble comes up. Right. But it seemed that the course of the day was don't rock the boat in the, the Methodist church. Right, right. And, and and let's face it, it wasn't just in the church. It wasn't just in, in the church that I knew that I grew up because, I mean, I grew up Methodist, like you said, because 
And it was a silence that extended in, into most of the white church, all, all, really all of the white churches and into boardrooms and law offices and, and everywhere else. But I, I came to realize that I didn't understand, I, I never understood that to the level I should have understood it. I never understood this. There's a, there's a professor I quote in the book named Bill Nicholas who, who talks about the conspiracy of silence and I think that's exactly what it was. Preacher after preacher in that generation that I talked to would say, you know, our bosses, what the district superintendent is the person over the preachers in the Methodist church between the, the bishop and, and the pastors. But they, they would say almost universally that they were discouraged from talking about what they called the, the race question or the race issue. And if they did, and there were, there were often consequences, some of the preachers were moved, were told they needed to leave the state. Some were relegated to small churches and small rural areas and never, and denied advancement the way the, the, in the Methodist church, if you, if you do what you're supposed to and don't make too many waves and don't make people mad and serve them in a way that suits churches. You move up to bigger churches and bigger churches. And that's what my dad did. He climbed the ladder to become an important person in the, in the conference in the Methodist, in the North Alabama conference of the Methodist church. But a lot of those people who did more actively confront racists in their church, who spoke in, in favor of uh, integration, who broached the race question, as it was called again, they suffered for it. And many of them told me, you know, your dad was quiet from the pulpit because of that, because he was looking after his family. I mean, and he was supporting you, which, <laughs> I, I've, you know, doesn't make me feel a whole lot better. What it does is make me feel complicit in it. That's the reason. I mean, it was a stifling sort of conspiracy of silence that, that warned people that they did not need to broach these topics. And, and I've, I've thought long and hard about how somebody who was as principled as I know my father to be, would have allowed that to happen. And I, and I, I come to the conclusion, I think, that it was less about any sort of fear. And, and, you know, and a lot of people had reasons to be fearful. John Lewis, of course, you know, Fred Shuttlesworth, these people got beat, you know, their heads bashed in. That's, that's taking risk. Taking a risk is not, you know, worrying if, if you're going to get a raise next year at a, you know, with a nicer parsonage in a bigger church. But I think that the main reason for my dad's silence was that he loved the church so much that he was a company man where the Methodist church was involved. And so if the leadership of the Methodist church told him to not preach from this, from the pulpit, he would have listened. And um, I don't say that as an excuse because I don't find it an acceptable excuse, but I think that would have been his reason. Beyond professional one, I mean, although not nearly as common as attacking African-Americans of the time, but the Klan and white supremacist terrorists of the time did murder white people and uh, threaten white people for any support of civil rights cause at the time as well. Sure, Yolo Liuzzo, you know, any number, uh, James Reeb, and you know, the, the person who I was purportedly named after, John Rutland, was a preacher in, in Birmingham and, and happened to be the... Uh, the preacher at Bull Connor's church, Bull Connor being an active Methodist and chairman of the, I can't, I can't remember the exact title right now, but uh, I think he was a, a Sunday school 
uh, superintendent is what he was. <laughs> Believe it or not, Bull Connor, the most, you know, one of the most vile figures in, in Birmingham racial history, really beyond that. But John Rutland was a preacher in his church and is and and spoke out against racism to the point where Bull Connor several times stood up in church and muttered the, you know, about the N-word preaching and stomped out and and John Rowan had a cross burned in his yard and uh, was threatened uh, in ways. Uh, various preachers across Alabama talked about having, you know, crosses burned. And one one fellow in his cellars who was, you know, talked about having to take his shotgun out and, and go down to a cafe and warn a Klansman that if, if they came around his children, he was going to shoot first and take his chances in court later. But ultimately, he sent me a, a note saying, in his cellars, that right before he died, that, that the church did not support him in that. And he was relegated to small churches for the rest of his career because he was put on this list of the Methodist Layman's Union, uh, which was a segregationist group formed at the time. But he said, you know, I, I don't ever, I don't regret it at all. I mean, because I, when I was called to preach, I wasn't called to preach at big churches or fancy churches. Uh, or churches with great salaries, I was just called to preach, and I, I did that, and I think I served people well. And there was a, you know, a contentment in that that I really just didn't hear from people who who took a safer route, which is interesting. Now, going back and reading your father's sermons, at what point did he start to address the topic directly instead of obliquely? Yeah. And that's, that's a point, you know, it was so frustrating to me because I, again, because I knew, and I mean, I I love my father, you know, and I respect him, you know, then and now more than anybody I've ever met. I I think he's a man of principle and a man of strength, which was why it was so surprising. Um, But in his early sermons, he would use parables of the the Good Samaritan or, or others all the time and almost uniquely rather than address issues of race and he would he would talk uh, you know instead of race and he would preach on issues like snobbery i don't i don't know when sometimes it it seemed to me that when he would talk about things like snobbery that he was really trying to address race but you know it's really uh it's really a sad sad sort of story for me because i mean the first clear word came in a sermon it it was in september of 1963 on september 15th 1963 which is an important date in history but there's just one word uh and and i don't remember exactly the 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 right quote right now but he basically just said you know something about our prejudice and pride gonna get us in trouble and so it's just that word prejudice but it was given it's in it's in a chapter of the book called too late but it was given on in that very vague way on on the morning of september 15th 1963 at what would have been i think about the same time that uh an usher at 16th street baptist church in birmingham heard the click that caused him to ask what it was and that was right before that bomb exploded and killed those four little girls and and really changed birmingham and changed the civil rights movement forever because uh it was it was just that point that that made people realize that this had gone too far. So it strikes it just strikes me so vividly that at this one moment where he was, you know, first beginning to to say, you know, at least to address use a word like prejudice, that that happened. Um, but he would grow 
he would grow through the 60s and and really there, at the, he became much more vocal after there, a new bishop was assigned to the region that who made it clear that that preachers would be supported in that effort i think and so the blessing of the church i believe gave him the more of a, a voice to to use his own now you tell stories of when you were growing up that the phrase do it <laughs> was big in, in getting children past hurdles and their fears. How do you think your father would have reacted if you had used do it to him in terms of addressing the quote-unquote race question? That's an excellent question. I think he would have thought that's fair. I think he would. And, and he would push us to do the things, you know, and, and mostly I'm talking about outdoor things, uh, jumping into places one wouldn't want to jump or jumping over things one didn't think they could jump. And really, I think that, you know, it was one of his philosophies of life to take those things on that we don't think we can. You know, throughout the writing of this book, I, I felt a lot of conflict about that because, uh, you know, on one hand, you want to hold him accountable and not just him, but the, the structures of and the cultures that created this conspiracy of silence. But on the other hand, I wanted to show, you know, all of him and the hymn that I knew and the, and the hymn that kept our family together in the, in the midst of a lot of crises and, and the unconditional love he had. So I did include a lot of that uh, intentionally. And I tell myself, I told myself throughout much of it that, that I think he would appreciate the intent and what I hope is the ultimate understanding of people who read it. And that is part of that comes from the last conversation I ever had with him when he when he was in hospice and he was able to reach out and grab my hand and, and tell me he appreciated that at that time, I mean, he said, I, you know, appreciate you taking on the race issue or question or whatever it was, which I never didn't really think that much about at the time because I didn't know at the time that he had struggled to do it. So, but I have taken that as a form of blessing and that he thinks that this issue he thought that this issue is important. And the fact that he said that to me in the moments before his death, I mean, it wasn't literally the moments, but in the days before his death and the last time that I saw him, I think that it was heavy on his mind. And that he told me that at a time when it, it made me feel like it was heavy on his mind and something that he felt, felt you know, was important. And that's how I dealt with it as I struggled mightily through writing this book to make sure that I was both hard enough on him and fair enough on him. And I've really been pleased that, you know, family members, most importantly, and the people I care the most about, and people who I respect within the church or within, you know, Alabama or people I know uh, have, have understood, or that people who loved him have understood what I'm saying and where I'm going. So that's the most important thing to me. In looking back and reconsidering and thinking about where your father may have fallen short when the important questions of the day came about, have you given any thought to how in 20, 30 years time, your children might think of you and how you fell short? <laughs> oh yeah, I have, you know, I have already given them permission to write anything they want to that holds me accountable for that. I mean, I think it's critically important. I mean, I write a column three times a week, you know, so undoubtedly I'll say the wrong thing sometimes. But that's really not, that doesn't bother me nearly as much as when I think of moments 
that I didn't say anything. And whether that's, you know, when I was younger, when I, you know, you know, just never mentioned to anybody that, you know, my brother came out as, in, as gay in the early 70s, which was, you know, a different time than it is today. And my brother was always one who cared for me and loved me and made sure, you know, in the many times I had to go to the hospital, he was usually the one holding, the, you know, holding me as the doctor stitched me up because... Because we, we did that do it thing a lot, which often <laughs> meant that I didn't do it well and I ended up with stitches. But, you know, I, I didn't talk about that to people and which was not, you know, because there was always a reasonable reason not to. I mean, you know, I just didn't mix the streams or whatever. But, you know, it came to really haunt me that, that I, 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 I didn't talk about that to people. And this is a long time ago, but it still haunted me because I felt like I was denying him. So it's it's these little things sometimes that you don't say at the Thanksgiving dinner table, maybe, and not that you should say everything that comes to mind at a Thanksgiving dinner table, don't get me wrong, but, but it's those moments when I felt like I needed to say something and I didn't that are the ones that haunt me way more than the times when I inevitably say the wrong thing. Now your father, unlike many in the Methodist church, was very accepting of your brother when he came out as gay and exhibited the generous love that we should all be so lucky to receive in our lives. That's very, very true. And, you know, there was evolution in that regard, too, uh, because in going back and looking at his sermons before that time, there was a certain one sermon called Moral Law, which spoke of issues of, I'm having trouble finding the words for it, sorry, because it wasn't a condemnation. I mean, it didn't mention homosexuality at all. It was just talking really about love between man and woman, but uh, used a lot of the language that a lot of the people who are uh, preaching more uh, anti-LGBTQ sermons these days are using. But but there was never any question when, uh, as I understand it, I mean, my brother came out before I was old enough to know what gay was. And, and I wasn't, you know, part of those conversations at the time. But according to, you know, my brother, there was never, ever any question that dad, you know, loved him and accepted him and, and always did and always invited him and his, his lifelong partner to church and finally his husband. And, um, you know, it was this unconditional love that, that kept the family together. And, you know, it's interesting to me. I mean, of all the, the kids in our family, the one who's the most involved in their church is, is Murray, my oldest brother, the one who uh, came out in the 70s uh, and was loved by his father uh, to the point where, you know, he ended up being able to love his church and and became more involved in that uh, as well. And so it's interesting. And I, and I, there's a lot of parallels in the book in the way the church itself and the Methodist church in particular has dealt with, with uh, gay and lesbian issues, really using a lot of the same language it did in the sixties and fifties to deal with desegregation. Um, and, and I find that interesting and uh, it's uh, quite a story. Your father came from a good line of Methodist preachers before him, and you even briefly considered the ministry, but recently you've reevaluated your relationship with the church, and it's not a, a good one for the church, I would guess. Well, I don't, I don't know. For perspective on that, it's, it was, it's my, from my dad's family, like I said, it's, it's a direct line of Methodist preachers until before the Civil War, and then they were other varieties of Protestant 
preachers back into the 1700s. My mom's dad was also a Methodist preacher, and so was her brother and her sister-in-law. And I've got a niece. I mean, there it's it, it's we've got. Uh, I mean, they Methodist preachers cover our family like kudzu in the South, I guess. So there's a lot of that, and and, and because of that, I think. So much of what my is what I am. It's almost as if it's in my DNA is 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 from the Methodist Church. And but I'm also you know I was a terrible kid and I got in a lot of trouble and I don't have much of a filter and I've got a foul mouth and I say things that I shouldn't. And I also have you know some problems uh, theologically with some of the more supernatural elements of religion. So I would have been a terrible pre, uh, preacher to. Uh, and I think that my pulpit is in different places and it's uh, more secular and less religious. But uh, I do think that all of those things are in my DNA uh, and they are re- probably to blame or, or to credit for the things that I think are important to write about. What is the Wesley quote about doing all the good you can? Yeah, do all the good you can. I always get it wrong, but it's do all the good you can in all the ways you can, uh, all the days you can. Uh, it's it goes on and, and and I should know it by heart by now, but but I <laughs> but I don't. But that's I mean that was essentially the theology that that my dad taught, but I but sometimes not as specifically as we might have needed. But it seems like you've mentioned the word cowardice before, but also a lack of imagination leads us to fall short of that mark. I think that's true, and a lack of uh, of. Uh, and there were moments when, and it's and it's and it's lack of risk, um, and it's just playing it safe. And I think he had expressed some doubt in, in some some of the sermons he gave about his failure to take some risks sometimes in the past. Yeah, I mean, he gave a sermon one time that talked about how he. I mean, it was really late in his career, I think, and he talked about how. He had never really had to take any risks in his life. And, and it seemed like in that passage, there was a little more self-reflection than you usually found in, found in his sermons. And I think that maybe he came to regret some of that. But, but again, it goes back to that, that whole idea of not, uh, of, of sort of being a company guy in, within the church. And there was heavy pressure on people, on ministers at that time. And, and today, in a lot of particularly progressive Protestant churches, I think, or middle of the road Protestant churches to keep politics out of the pulpit. Like people on Twitter will blast uh, singers or athletes and say, you know, or sports writers or, and say, you know, uh, stick to sports or stick to music and leave the politics out of it. And the people in churches would tell pastors, you know, to stick to the, the scripture and leave the politics out of it. And there was a lot of, pressure to do that. But uh, again, uh, Professor Bill Nicholas, uh, I think, put it best to me when he said, you know, by making the decision to keep politics out of the pulpit, the church, and he was talking specifically about the Methodist church, made a political decision to do that. And that decision was to not talk about the things that were most important um, in this place and this time in the, and you know, and really in what was, uh, as we consider in Birmingham to be one of the, as, as, as Memphis does and as, as so many other places do, consider themselves cradles of the civil rights movement and justifiably so. 
but the church itself was making a, a, this decision to keep politics um, out of it at a time when the people needed really to hear it most. I grew up in northwest Arkansas, part of the Ozarks, and because of the topography, it was never considered great territory to bring slaves into and have a plantation-style economy. So it wasn't a great history of African Americans living in the area at all. So it wasn't until I moved to Memphis, I would hear older people who came from all over the Mid-South area, and I would talk with them just about the history of the town and where they came from. And these older white folks would always say, well, you know, it was bad, but it wasn't like that in our town. Everyone just got along. And it just struck me either the lies or the obliviousness that these people had from that time. Oh, amen. <laughs> I think it's obliviousness uh, more than it is intentional lies. And, and, you know, I found that some of that in my dad's sermons, but it certainly existed in my life, too. Um, because, you know, I did, I grew up in, you know, I was born just outside Birmingham and lived all over North Alabama, but it, but it, for the most part, consider myself having grown up in Birmingham, because that's where I went to high school. Um, but, you know, I, did, I didn't know anything about what happened in Birmingham or the rest of the South. I didn't know about the letter from jail from King. I didn't know, I mean, I can go down incidents that, that may or may not be familiar to people, but but the level of, of obliviousness by white people um, in the South about the important racial history that took place here um, is really pretty stunning. And I mean, I, and I felt, you know, it was, it was, I was grown and working when I finally began to understand the history of the place I had grown up simply because it was suppressed so often. And people, you know, <laughs> I can still remember people 10 years ago arguing with me that we were post-racial, you know, so uh, it, it, it just continues to exist and we continue to say it wasn't as bad as, as you know, people make out and, and all this, but at the same time, if you go back and read the textbooks we were taught, uh, every Alabama student was taught out of this book called No Alabama in the fourth grade that gave the, the it was the Alabama history book and it evolved over the years, but into the 60s, it told, you know, this story of slavery that was about how, you know, the, the, the noblemen of the KKK went out and taught people a lesson until, uh, you know, black people saw who their friends were and settled down and went to work. I mean, it was the whole stories that were being told were told with the intent of helping us to not look at the sins of our past and to instead uh, justify them as something that was not heinous, but noble. And uh, a lot of people are, are really eager to buy into that notion so they can feel better about who they are and where they came from. Well, and that's still going on today because I think in Texas, they've tried to get the word slavery removed from grade school history textbooks and to kind of just gloss over that terrible period in our history. That's remarkable. In Alabama, you know, the legislature has a law that prevents you from, prevents a city, for instance, or anyone else from removing a Confederate monument. And uh, now that there, some legislation was introduced, and I'm a little bit away from it right now, but that would have actually limited what you could put up for context around them. So, I mean, it's, it continues, it continues all the time. And frankly, it continues more now. I mean, it is, it is, it is far more overt than it's been most of my lifetime. I mean, people are, people 
having grown up in the South and in, in, in a very contentious part of the South, uh, most of my life, people were reluctant to be overtly racist, at least to say the things out loud that they might say in private. But it seems like these days they have become less reticent about that and are more willing to say the things I would have imagined them saying in 1963. I would assume being a somewhat liberal columnist in Birmingham, Alabama, you get some very interesting emails and and (laughs) mails from folks. I do, but you know, I mean, I've I've been doing this a long time and I have criticized a lot of people on both ends of the uh, of the political spectrum. And, uh, you know, I promise you when Democrats were in power in Alabama, they hated me as much as Republicans do now. Of course, in, in recent years. Were those different people? Uh, they were largely the same people, uh, but uh, one became the other. I mean, that's the story of uh, politics in Alabama. But, but I mean, I like to say, I like to think that it's not about politics, but but of course, people would say that's ridiculous. I mean, clearly, clearly from everything I write, people can tell where uh, what I feel about things, and and those are going to be far to the left. I think of of what most people in Alabama would would agree with, but I don't really, I don't want this to be about politics, and I don't. I mean, you know, again, that's a <laughs> delusion to say that, but. But at the same time, I, I want to keep overt politics out of it because I just want to tell my story of, of my family primarily and how it dealt with these things in ways that were lacking and ways that were not. And hopefully, you know, if, if anybody can recognize any of that as something familiar and not just political, that would be great. And that's so very hard in this day and age to do. And beyond the social issues that you wrestle with and your father had to wrestle with in the pulpit, you do give a portrait of growing up in this wonderfully close and loving family. Can you tell us a little bit about the Methodist camp experience? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, camp was everything to us because, you know, Methodist, you know, preacher's kids have to move a lot because especially back in those days, they'd move, you know, every three or three to five years. And so we we went from Alabaster to Jacksonville to Huntsville, I mean, Alabaster to Huntsville to Jacksonville to Decatur to Birmingham uh, before I was in high school. And so it's a lot. And so really the only sort of constants we had were camps. And we we were a little bit different because, like I said, my grandfather on my mother's side was a Methodist preacher in Georgia and a, a fairly prominent one. And he had a cabin on the Methodist camp around in Dahlonega, outside Dahlonega, Georgia. So we would spend a lot of time there. But my dad's family was, played a, a bit of a part in establishing camp in the Methodist camp in North Alabama called Camp Sumatanga. And so we would go there all the time. And that's where a lot of the, the do it things came from. The, the uh, jumping into a lake that had, you could see the snakes writhing around, you know, in, and dad's like, do it and jumping over things. But, but I, I, you know, I honestly, I felt so close to the camp and I felt so close to my dad at camp. It's where we did a lot of fishing and where, you know, we could, you know, really be alone and not have to speak to understand each other. And I like, I think there are, mo- there are two different moments when we could really just sit down and understand each other all the time without having to talk about things that made one or the other of us uncomfortable. And that was fishing at one of those camps or watching Alabama football. And, uh, and that only lasted until the Budweiser commercials came on because he didn't approve of those. <laughs> but, 
but the camps, you know, they brought me this sense of peace. And, and it's, and, and there's a story in the book about how one of those story those have some of that sense of peace was broken when I found out some of the realities of the history that I had never been allowed to know, or I had never been uh, told about, but it just brought home the fact that nothing, nothing was immune to this, this deep pressure to maintain a, a racial status quo and to not question. You know, we could on one hand sit there and learn to sing and sing in the round, of course, uh, you know, the uh, red and yellow, black and white, Jesus loves us in his sight. And at the same time, the boards that oversaw the, the camps, which in some cases included members in my family, made decisions that discriminated against people on the basis of their skin tone. So red and yellow, black and white didn't mean very much. Yet those places were still, still very important to me. In the COVID time with, I'm sure your social calendar is a little bit lighter than it used to be. Have you had more of an opportunity to go back outside and, and commune with nature? Well, I'm actually doing a fellowship in Boston right now. So Communing with nature has meant learning how these people deal with ungodly amounts of snow, so, <laughs> which actually, since I've never really experienced a winter before, has been, I mean, a real winter before, has been enlightening. And what they say about these New Englanders being industrious is true on the morning when it snows, I'll tell you that, but I don't think I could handle it. But I really long to get out on a lake with a a fly rod like me and my dad used to do and and just uh you know paddle silently around in the canoe and drop a little popping bug on the water's edge and uh that's i always think of of him when i do that uh, because he would paddle me around in the foggy mornings and i even after i you know stuck a chartreuse popping bug in the ball spot of the back of his head so <laughs> I, I feel close to him when i get to do that still yeah, I'd never known anyone to fly fish for bass. Yeah, it's uh, I feel it's, it's you know, it's not as hard. It's not as it doesn't take as much skill as as fly fishing on a, on a you know, on a river um, where you really got to set it there. You got to feel it. But with a little popping bug, you just, you know, you set it on the water's edge and, you know, they'll come up and they'll just. I mean, they'll just bust through the top of the water and you can't miss it. It's a lot of fun and really exciting. And uh, I would highly recommend it. Now, how did your family react to you marrying a Baptist woman? <laughs> oh, well, uh, you know, we, we, we like to make Baptist jokes because it made us feel like we were better, which is also part of my uh, shock and disappointment at learning that than much of what I learned about the Methodist church was an illusion. Um, but uh, we, I did, I got married in a Baptist church, which was uh, another great shock to those who knew the Archibald family. But my dad did do the service. So I guess we got a Methodist service in a Baptist church. So we had the uh, reception in the Baptist church, which was very similar to a reception in the Methodist church in that there were, there were like peanuts and mints and not a, not a nip of anything good to drink. Did you have that ginger ale sherbet punch? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't. I should rephrase it, phrase that, because that stuff is delicious. I will say. <laughs> I remember the first time I went to a Catholic wedding, seeing the uh, friar afterwards holding a, a can of Bush beer, which just blew my mind. 
Yeah, I, I have very similar feelings. You know, it's like the world opened up. Now, I grew up missionary Baptist, and we didn't say mean things about Methodists because we were too busy talking about other types of Baptists. <laughs> well, it probably makes you superior to me because uh, uh, we, we had jokes to tell about everybody from the whiskey palians to the to the Baptists. And the, but, you know, that, that's easy to say until you found that, find out that, you know, both George Wallace and Bull Connor were good and active Methodists. So. <laughs> So much for the superiority. I was happy to learn that we were fraternity brothers. Uh, <laughs> GDI. GDI. <laughs> That's right. We were. Where'd you go to school? I finished up at the University of Arkansas, but I started off at a Methodist school, Hendricks College. They didn't have a Greek system at Hendricks College. So when I went to the University of Arkansas, I said, I don't want any part of this and pledge GDI. And <laughs> That's right. Well, I did too, and it changed my life forever. I went to the University of Alabama and and was a pretty uh, vocal GDI because it just none of it seemed fair in Alabama. And Alabama, in particular, is heavily Greek. I mean, I guess all the SEC schools are, but there's a, a sort of secret organization that runs all of student life that called the machine, which is a patterned after the, the skull and bones from Yale, I guess. But but my girlfriend at the time, well, a girl that I was dating at the time was a FIMU, and we were both working at the student newspaper, and uh, we began to, to do these exposés on the machine in which we attempted to uncover the closely held secret of who the machine representatives were in, on, in the, from each fraternity and sorority and so we staked them out sitting at a buffalo wing restaurant across from the sigma new house and we identified all these people and we're putting them in the paper and they they saw us we figured out what we were doing and they started putting things over their heads and pulling cars up to the door so we couldn't see them and then they surrounded the crimson white which is a student newspaper and stole papers and all this and it was great deal of cloak and dagger intrigue and we thought it was the most important stuff in the world and all that alicia the the girl i was talking about her sorority advisor called her in and um and told her that she was hurting the sorority and so she had to turn in her pen and get kicked out of sorority or she could stop dating me and stop writing for the crimson white and she said uh well, I think I'm going to marry him, so I'm not going to do that. And I uh, think I'm going to be a journalist, so I'm not going to do that either. And, oh, I, I can't find my pen, but you can't have it. And um, <laughs> so she ended up choosing me, and she's sitting in the other bedroom right now as we talk because we've been married for, what, 35 years now. So being a GDI in that case sort of uh, <laughs> began the story of my life, as it were. Because when I walked into that student newspaper, I fell both in love with her and with the news. And uh, and part of that falling in love was because I had never, I mean, with the news part, came before, because I had never challenged any kind of authority in the, before that. I'd never found the words to say the things that I thought needed to be said. And, uh, and I just fell in love with that whole concept. And, and it led me along whatever this path is. Now, who would think that the Greek organizations of Southern colleges would be based on exclusion? Where did they ever get that idea? 
It's so remarkable. We did a podcast about the machine not too long. I mean, it was a few years ago. But the number of people, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's sort of funny to me because so many of the politicians that we have in Alabama came up through the machine, either fighting it or or being part of it. And, and sometimes it's both. Alabama's current Secretary of State was a GDI SGA president in Alabama, interestingly enough, whose office was burglarized Watergate style when we were there, but who has come to be a typical Alabama politician. But but also so many of the people who came up through the the student newspaper have have also been uh, you know sort of reporters who try, who who investigate crooked politicians. So I think it's a training ground on both ends. I mean, like <laughs> politicians learn this dark political arts, and the journalists learn to be really skeptical of them. So it's it's almost it, it makes me laugh to think about it because you know everything is so magnified when you're in school. But I do think that there's a real result real you know, cause and effect there. I would like to make fun of the freshman senator from Alabama having oh. such a horrible knowledge of the way that our government is structured and works, but he did grow up in Arkansas after all. <laughs> yeah, and he's, yeah, and as I say in Alabama, he, uh, well, he has no defense and never did. So uh, on the field or off. But I would have liked him for, to just know what the Voting Rights Act was. That would have been okay think if you know he's unsuccessful in coaching a football team how's he gonna do leading the government <laughs> that's what i don't understand i mean and you know I, nick saban had decided he wanted to run for uh senate i'm i would have fully understood people electing him but for for a guy who was run out of auburn to do it i mean that's a different matter he was a guy who was run out of auburn who wasn't even living in alabama when he decided to run for senate i guess football really does mean everything you use several very strong Anglo-Saxon interjections during the course of the book. Would you have written those had your mother still been with us? Yeah, for those who don't know, um, my, my mom, once it became clear that I was, I did write things for a living, and she became firmly convinced that I was going to write a book about the family. Uh, <laughs> she had urged me not to use bad language and and I failed her in several counts because it was the only word that came to mind. <laughs> because sometimes I think that uh, you got to say what's on your heart. And I don't think that she would have loved that, but I think she would have appreciated the point. Well, you have a little bit more freedom in your language than you do as a newspaper columnist. No, I do. I have had the word but taken out of a column when I was referring to a Boston butt, a piece of meat, and <laughs> because the rules were definitely different in the old age of certainly the Birmingham News where I got all of this. But they didn't play around with words that might be uh, even thought of as bad. I wonder if they would allow it to fly in a Southern Living magazine. I don't know. I'd like to give it a shot. <laughs> So writing a book is really different from writing an 800-word column. Yeah, I write 582 words. That's what I try for because that's what it used to be when it was on the side of the, on the metro state front. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me to have to write to 582 words because every word has to be right. <laughs> but I digress. Go ahead. It is different. It is different. Yeah, but when you hit like a book-length project and you're going, wow, now I need 59,500 more words. Mm -hmm. It was really hard for me at first because, I mean, in, mo in other attempts primarily, 
because I could write in those chunks. I was really practiced in that, and I could fire off a 582-word chunk pretty well. Uh, and after that, it just starts to seem long. <laughs> but it was a little different with this, honestly, because, I mean, I, truthfully, I've never written anything that came out of me quite as fluidly as this, because when I, as soon as I found those sermons and read those sermons and read the dates and times that corresponded with them, I mean, it was pretty, it made a, for a pretty clear outline. And so sitting down to write uh, those events became, it, it was a lot less difficult than I thought it would be, honestly. It was a, mo it was a lot more emotional than I thought it would be. I think you can read some of that in there in those moments where some of those words appear. Those are the moments where I'm mostly questioning myself and saying, who am I to judge a people in another time? Because we never know what we're going to do in another time, although we can use them to educate ourselves about how we want to act today. But also because I am questioning the essentially the person that I uh, admire the most and the strategies he was using to try to reach people. And I wanted him to be more direct and I wanted him to be more, more vocal. And I wanted him to say the things out loud that needed to be said. When in fact, I mean, you know, again, I used the metaphor of the fly rod again. <laughs> There's a good chance he was swinging that fly over the water, hoping to draw those fish to the surface so he could bring them in. And while my, while my technique might be to throw dynamite in the water, perhaps, <laughs> but so, so I really worried about questioning his technique and questioning what he was saying. But in the end, uh, I wish he had been more vocal and I wish, you know, cause sometimes the, a parable is not enough. Had you discussed with your siblings this topic before you started writing about it or only afterwards? I discussed it with them as soon as I found the letters, I mean the sermons and, uh, and, and a lot of letters too. I went over a lot of letters from family and, you know, I think they were nervous about it because, you know, we all love our, our dad and our family. But I, I kind of brought them along and I wrote it. I wrote it, uh, actually pretty quickly for a book and, and sent it to them right before I sent it to the publisher. That was really important to me because because our family is close and I would much rather not have a book about this than to sacrifice my family. And and they came along at different levels of, of speed to accept it and, my, and, and, and for the most part have accepted it fully. And my oldest brother is speaking with me about it at a book event in, in a couple of weeks. And they've become, you know, my biggest supporters on it and they fully understand what my message is trying to say. That's been the most gratifying part of the whole thing. In writing about something so personal and it meaning so much to you, when you go back to write a column, does it feel a little less now than after doing this big project? Well, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm on a sabbatical right now, so I'm not actually writing columns, but uh, I did write columns after I wrote the book, and I'll be back at it again in June. But, you know, it, the thing about writing columns is they're always current. I mean, you're writing about things that are happening right now, and not everything is, and, and you don't have the, the, the benefit of hindsight. You, you make the best call in the best moment in the time, and that's always a challenge but it always makes it seem extremely relevant and, 
and you have to push yourself from a thinking perspective, you know, to know where to come down. And again, some, I'm sure I've taken the wrong stance many times, but there's always a currency to it that is invigorating to me. And I love it. And I love it as a form. And so, you know, I'm not sure how, how many people still do, but it's a joy to me. In writing about difficult things about your family and you being from Alabama and a journalist, how do you say, okay, I'm not going to try to copy Rick Bragg's career? <laughs> how did you know to say that to me? Um, <laughs> well, you know, I used to work with Rick. When I first started the Birmingham News, Rick was there. And of course, you know, Rick, if you know Rick, if you're familiar with his work, you know that no matter whatever you think, he can turn a phrase better than anybody I've ever met in my life. So for the first few years, uh, uh, you know, he, he was writing these amazingly beautiful things, taking a lot of risks and, and sometimes sometimes overdoing it to some degree. But he, But when he was on, he could write, you know, just so well that, you know, really, I think everybody was trying to write like Rick. And um, I think it was two or three years really in the business. And I would try to write like Rick and it would always come off as overwritten. And, and I think at some point I just stopped because the best case scenario, if I wrote like Rick, then I'd be a cheap, cheap imitation of Rick. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so I stopped doing that. And um, it was really when I just started listening to that voice in my own head that people started to, you know, respond to it in a better way. And, you know, I tell students, you know, that because people are always saying, you know, find your voice, use your voice, but they don't tell you what that is. And, uh, and so it finally dawned on me at some point that my voice is just that, that, that voice that I never trusted that was telling me what to write and why to write it. And, you know, that spoke to me through, you know, it came out my fingertips. And so I guess when I f first started realizing that that thing was my voice and that people tended to like it when I trusted it, that I realized, you know, that's really the only thing we have in the world that's uniquely ours, you know, it's that voice in our head. And so uh, when we learn to trust it, then, then we, then we can share it with the world and, and people can sort of understand when it's a authentic voice. And so I stopped trying to be somebody else and started trying to be me. Although, you know, uh, I'd love to follow his career and have as many readers as he has. <laughs> <laughs> well, you recently won a, a Pulitzer Prize, so you're not doing too bad in that regard. Well, they'll give that thing to anybody, as Rick told me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at least now when someone writes to you and say, dear commie liberal, you can say that's Pulitzer winning commie liberal to you. Well, yeah, well, I, I don't know how well that plays. I just know that... Uh, I at least know how my my obituary will start now. So that's, <laughs> that's one good thing, I guess. So on the sabbatical, are you working on anything longer form? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a Neiman Fellowship. And I'm, as part of that, I'm trying to examine how coverage of crime in the digital age affects or does not affect our culture of fear and political divide because it's really based on a, an idea that, and certainly the system I work in, a lot of websites employ uh, algorithms that keep, you know, popular stories in front of readers, you know, not just today, but tomorrow, and they'll pop back up periodically because they got a lot of hits the first time. And so as a result, we see a lot of crime as if it were a new crime, which is actually old crime that has may or may not have been adjudicated and that sort of thing. 
So I'm just trying to find out how that affects us. And it's an interesting study, though I have no conclusion as of yet. I know many of us on Facebook have seen a, an older aunt or uncle share an outrage article from three years ago mm-hmm. and go, exactly why is this pertinent? Right. And, and, and you know, so many, and I, I shared one the other day. I did it. You know, as much as I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here at Harvard studying this stuff. <laughs> and, and the BBC tweeted a story the other day about Mary Tyler Moore dying, right? Mary Tyler Moore, of course, died. I think it was in 2017 or something like that. But, you know, and I just retweeted it with, uh, you know, RIP or whatever it was, only to be, only to be, you know, told instantly by the loving people of Twitter that I had done it. So it's so easy to do. And when you just see this parade of faces of people, you know, charged with something, charged with something, charged with something. And, and you know, there are many cases where you'll, you'll have somebody charged and nobody will ever check and see if they were convicted or if, you know, the charges were dropped, but that story will still appear. And so it has this cumulative effect, even though I've, I've done so many stories of, about crime stats over the years, I used to be a cop reporter, uh, that I know that crime itself is way down compared to when I covered it in the late eighties and early nineties, the numbers are just far less than they were then. Yet this, this culture of fear is just pervasive. And I, and I think that we in the media play a significant role in that. Well, and I remember reading in the past few years that child abductions are actually much less than they used to be 60, 70 years ago. But I, I wonder if it's that, that they're less common now that they become a bigger deal because they don't happen as frequently in addition to the media play. Right. And, and the fact that whenever they do, they become larger than life sort of stories. And it's one of those things where it doesn't have to be in your backyard. If a child is abducted in New Mexico, I mean, there's a good chance. I mean, you know, if it's if it can be made a sensational enough case, which it can in many cases, then we all hear about it. And so, I mean, I think that that happens a lot of times. I don't know what to do about it, though, because as a former cop reporter, I also see the need in telling people's stories and telling, you know, stories of victims and of, you know, the families involved in the neighborhoods and the police. I mean, I, I think that we need, you know, it's certainly news, <laughs> so you can't just stop covering news. So I don't know the, the details. I mean, I don't know the answers other than um, I really am opposed to the uh, to these algorithms that bring them back up time and time again. I myself came very close to passing on something on Facebook as well. This past week when uh, Larry McMurtry passed away and Beverly Cleary, someone had posted an RIP for Jim Harrison. And I was going, man, that's, that's the law of threes when it comes to notable persons passing. But then I was like, there's no way he was still alive. And I went back and he had passed away several years ago. And I went, okay, good. I didn't write some embarrassing post where I put all three of these folks together. You went in the responsible category this week because I failed. Small victories. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, everybody does it. And, you know, sometimes it gets caught and sometimes it just gets passed along. Uh, you know, I, I keep telling when I speak to student classes and everything, I always tell them that they're going to be much better at, at navigating that and sorting through what's real and what's fake. And uh, because I do believe they, you know, when you come up with it, you, you know, that pitfalls a little bit more than some of us who started elsewhere, uh, but I'm just not sure that's really true because I think it's just so easy to get in a routine where you, 
you're passing things along before you fully understand what's in it. And that can be dangerous, but we all know that that's, that's not exactly wisdom. Or people posting Babylon Bee or Onion articles as the true article of faith there. Right. And I hate to demonize either one of them because they're hilarious. We've got to be able to laugh too. We just need to know. <laughs> we just need to know the difference. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for taking an hour and out and speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Your book is honest in a way that so few people in the South, white people in the South, talk about the history of their family's role in civil rights. And to go through and question one's family history like that, it's been very admirable. Well, thank you. I, I hope I said the right things. <laughs> you told us your story. I think that's all we can ask for. Right. Well, it was a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care now. John Archibald is the author of Shaking the Gates of Hell, A Search for Family and Truth in the Wake of the Civil Rights Revolution, which is published by Knopf. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.